Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 30 as we return to this historical book of the Old Testament. We're going to read tonight from verse 1 to chapter 31, verse 1. Second Chronicles chapter 30, beginning at verse 1, going to verse 1 of chapter 31. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, and will not turn you away from his face from will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense incense, they took away and threw into the Kidron Valley and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month and the priests and the Levites were ashamed so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God, the priests through the blood that they had received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. 
And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you. For these ancient records, which we know are very far from a mere collection of facts and numbers and names. But Lord, you have a message in this story you're telling. And we thank you for the faith of our Old Testament brethren. And we thank you that Jesus is their lamb, even as he died for our sins. Well, teach us, Lord, about this passage of spiritual renewal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For many television viewers, I think the highlight of the Olympic Games is its dazzling opening ceremony. And here, sparing it seems no expense, the host country seeks to promote its identity and its ideals in such a way that, I think they think at least, they're going to reshape the world. Well, Judah's King Hezekiah thought similarly about the opening months of his reign as king for 15 years, godly Hezekiah had served as regent together with his father, the ungodly, pragmatist King Ahaz, and whose reign had left the nation spiritually crippled. But now around the year 715 BC, for keeping track with Jeremiah, it's about a century, just under a century before Jeremiah was born, Ahaz had died, and now Hezekiah would rule as king in his own name. And what we have in Second Chronicles is a great amount of detail about those opening months. Now, just as nations today spare no expense in hosting the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, likewise Hezekiah was determined to make a statement. That's what he does in the opening months of his reign. He's going to make a statement now that he is king. And beginning in chapter 29, we read from the chronicler how, if you remember, first he ordered the physical cleansing of the temple, the throwing out of the idols and the cleansing of the room so the building, which had been closed, was actually opened. That, that was completed in his first month as king, chapter 29, 1 to 19. Then there was the consecration of the Levites and the priests so that the biblically faithful worship could be restored. That's the rest of chapter 29. 
Well, the showpiece and the grand finale of this opening reformation was Hezekiah's celebration of the Passover, which had fallen into gross neglect in recent times. It's hard to tell exactly from the Old Testament record, but certainly the impression is that the Passover, instead of being kept yearly, was seldom kept. There would have been generations that went by, and there was no keeping of the Passover. Well, Andrew Stewart suggests that it was God's providence that arranged the timing of the annual Passover to coincide with Hezekiah's beginning to reign. He says Hezekiah had set out to turn back the tide of national apostasy in Judah. Well, what better way to do that than to summon the entire nation to God's house, to remember God's grace in the redeeming blood through which the Lord had, re- had delivered Israel from their slavery in Egypt. The redeeming blood that formed the heart of God's gospel of grace in the Old Testament, just as it does in the New. Now, the original Passover was God's provision to save his people from his wrath on their sins through the blood of the Lamb. After the sins of his father and that generation, Hezekiah was spiritually astute in that he understood that the great need of the people was to be made right with God. They needed to be forgiven. They needed to know that they were forgiven. That forgiveness would come through the blood of the Lamb in order to secure a future with the Lord. Well, the account of Hezekiah's Passover breaks down into three clear units, the first of which is his appeal, his summons, not merely to the people of Judah over over whom he reigned as king, but to all of Israel to make peace with God through the blood of the Passover lamb. Look at verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now in these days, you may or may not know, uh, the people of Israel had long since for centuries been a divided kingdom. It was in the 900s where the northern kingdom, or the 800s, where the northern kingdom uh, broke away from the southern kingdom. And then about seven years prior to this event, it's hard to date exactly the dates of Hezekiah's reign, but I would argue that this is maybe seven years after the northern kingdom had fallen completely. It was conquered. Its capital scenario was overrun. Many of the people had been carted off into distant lands. In exile, those who remained were a mere province of the Assyrian Empire. And yet Jeremiah, Hezekiah had an insight that saw beyond the mere political realities. He saw that the nation of God's covenant people principally remained one. And they were to have true unity, and he knew that true unity would only be realized through faith in God's word and true worship as God had prescribed. You know, that remains true today. When we don't have unity in the truth, unity in faith, unity in worship, there is no oneness of God among God's people, even if we have institutional unity. There's no oneness without unity in the truth, in the spirit, in our, in our worship according to God's word. But when there's unity in the truth, when there's unity in the spirit, there is no earthly divide that can truly sunder God's people. Hezekiah understood this. And it seems clear then that his hope was that as the northern people of of Israel, that's Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh are the two main tribes of it, as they had been so severely chastened by God, 
For their worship of idols, their kingdom had been destroyed. They were vassals of Assyria, that now there might be a spirit of repentance that would animate a spiritual restoration in a way that had been impracticable before. It's interesting that in setting this sterling example, Hezekiah exhibits the exact opposite spirit from the original founder of the northern kingdom. If you know your book of Kings and earlier on in Chronicles, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. And he was cynical in the exact opposite way from Hezekiah. He cared nothing for spiritual unity. All he cared about was his political power. And so he erected idols to lead the people away from the Lord and his word, if only they would be under him politically. Hezekiah had the exact opposite spirit in a way that cared nothing for his royal authority. What he wanted was the people united in true worship, in in the gospel, in biblical truth, even if it gave him no political advantage. Well, accordingly, verse 2 says, the king and the princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel, and here was their thought, to keep the Passover. That's what they were going to do. And as a result of that, the assembly sent out a proclamation, verse 5, throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not kept it as often as prescribed. Now, Beersheba is on the southern boundary of old Israel. Dan is at the northern extremity. So what they're saying is, it's whoever, whatever the actual political reality is, the biblical Israel is Beersheba to Dan, we're going to send messengers out to all of that. And we're going to ask the people to come and to worship the Lord and to keep the Passover. You see, here's an, an example of faith that sets such an inspiring example to our evangelistic efforts, as Paul would later write, They were trusting God to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine according to the power that is in him. What they were suggesting was extremely unlikely according to the flesh. Ah, but they're acting in faith, seeking God to bless it. Well, King Hezekiah adds to that general summons his own exhortation. It's very interesting because he gives reasons and incentives for why the people should respond in faith. There's four things he points out. First, he appeals to the covenant promises that God gave to the ancient patriarchs. They were still valid. All these terrible things that happened in the years since Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob, it called Israel. But those promises were still true. By the way, they still are true. He said in verse 6, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. The invitation was not merely for a restoration of national political unity. No, it was to the Lord, a restored relationship to the God of the covenant. Now, second of all, he pointed out their need for God's saving care, given the deprivations the northern kingdom had suffered. That they may turn again, also verse 6, that he may turn again to the remnant of you, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Israel. There was a remnant of the people who were still there. They were downtrodden. They needed the Lord. The Lord's promises were still valid. That's the first claim. The second one is that you need him. His third incentive is particularly poignant, given the terrible judgment the remnant of the northern kingdom had just suffered. Verse 7, do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of your fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. It, it, it was because of sin that they had suffered so greatly. They'd been faithful, faithless, 
But now here's an opportunity to return to faithfulness. Oh, what a thing that is. When God gives you the opportunity to return from faithlessness to faithfulness, when they could put behind them the desolation that sin had made of their lives, that their fathers had been stiff-necked, they had refused to hear the prophets. But now listen in verse 8, he urges, yield yourself to the Lord to come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. Reading this, I'm reminded of the occasion when Simon Peter asked Jesus how many times someone should be forgiven if they repent. As many as seven times, Peter mused. And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Well, following that same spirit, Hezekiah assured the people that their repentance would not be refused by the Lord of their covenant that his wrath would in fact be removed. But let me, let me say to you, whatever condition you are, wherever you are, if you're down the path of sin, repentance will lead to restoration from, with God. Repentance, a renewal of faith, seeking the Lord wherever you are, whatever trouble you're in, whatever desolation it seems unbelief and sin has made of your life, which, which Hezekiah says to the Israelites, God says to you, oh, Return to the Lord your God. Literally, he uses the language, stretch out your hand to the Lord. Put your hand in his hand is a literal translation. He will receive you. Well, the final incentive Hezekiah gives involved the message that we Christians delight to tell the sinners today. Verse 9, for if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. He says, even your captives will show compassion to you because of God's compassion. God will work his mercy and grace on your behalf. I think maybe the best illustration of God's abundant mercy comes from another episode in Jesus' ministry. There was a man in Luke 5, Mark 2 as well, who was afflicted with leprosy. And leprosy was such a picture of sin and the, the the way that sin corrupts our nature and the way it alienates us. It makes us exiles from God and from other people. Sin does that to our lives. But this particular leper had heard of Jesus and he spied Jesus coming and he asked that great question, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He knew from what he'd heard that Jesus had the ability to cleanse and restore him. But the question was, is he willing to do so? I wonder if you have that question. Does God have compassion on me? Is he willing to show mercy? And of course, Jesus' answer was so wonderfully brief. I am willing, he said. Be clean. One of the wonderful details of that text is that before he even spoke those words, Jesus touched him. He laid his hands on that arm that nobody else would even touch. He had mercy. He was willing. And yes, he was able to cleanse him. He had compassion. That's what Hezekiah says. It's what the gospel says to you. God will show you compassion. He will show compassion through Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus came into the world for no other person, no other purpose than that he would save sinners. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
you say, why would he save a sinner like me? He came into the world for the express purpose of saving sinners like you. Jesus will touch you with the power of his grace. By by that great compassion that moved him to bear the cross for your sins, he will cleanse you through and through if only you will turn to him in faith. And it's on this theme of saving mercy that Hezekiah concludes his appeal. Verse 9, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you will return to him. Now the Christian word for that appeal, that message Hezekiah sent, is the gospel. It's the gospel. And it's our privilege today to spread the same message far and wide that sinners may be restored by coming to Jesus Christ. Well, back when Hezekiah first conceived of this idea to hold the Passover, he realized that there was a bit of a hitch. We see this in verse 3. The priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. Here's the problem. According to God's law, the Passover was to be celebrated in the first month of each year on the 14th day. That, by the way, corresponds roughly to Easter on our calendar, but the the Jewish New Year is at a different time. It had to be celebrated the first month of the year. What's the problem with that? Well, they weren't ready in the first month. Remember back in chapter 29, they spent the whole first month cleansing the temple. And the priests didn't have their acts together. They weren't ritually clean or consecrated. There was no temple service, and now the first month is gone. But, and here's a good thing that we ought to do, They continued studying God's word because it turns out in Numbers chapter 9 that the Lord had made a provision to Moses that if the people had missed the first month because for there's a variety of reasons given why they were ritually unclean, he would permit them to keep it the second month. Also on the 14th day, while learning this, verse 2, the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. Now a second problem occurred after the invitations went out, namely that so many people who received them refused to come. Verse 10 says, So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Now, that's a very bitter grief to those who bear the gospel today. We're not surprised when this happens, but it's very grievous. There's a scoffing and laughing at the claims of Jesus Christ. Now, we know from the New Testament why that is. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians two fourteen that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians two fourteen. We call that problem total depravity. People are sinners. They, they are spiritually dead. And so they scoff and mock at the word of life. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. That's what he meant when he pointed out that not all of Israel were Israel. And not all who descended from Israel belonged to Israel. The true Israel is that of faith, but there were many ethnic Israelites, receivers of these messages, who were not uh, the offspring spiritually of Abraham. Romans 9, 6 to 7. The true Israel has always been a faith, and it was ever the lament of God's servants. 
that so many outward Israelites proved to be false through unbelief. Paul laments in Romans 10, 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Well, this is a problem, a disappointment that Hezekiah now will experience. Now there is good news, however, and it's this, that despite that situation, the sovereign grace of God nonetheless breaks through to the hearts of many. Look at verse 11, more heartening news arise as some of the hearers returned. However, some men of Asher and of Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. I think it's a, there's a statement being made there. The fact that those who believed humbled themselves and came tells us that pride is one of the chief reasons for the unbelief by which so many were scoffers. But through those who came, Hezekiah was rewarded for the faith he'd shown in God, that God would call many through his good news for the coming Passover. Instead of being discouraged by the realization that many would reject and even revile the message, many people today, they're discouraged by evangelizing because people are going to make fun of me. I'm going to reach out to somebody, they're just going to not even accept it. And you may very well be right. Hezekiah knew that too, but he trusted God to bring all those whom he had willed would come. By the way, this is why the doctrine of election is not a disincentive to witness the gospel. If you understand what's really happening, it's the only incentive. As Paul said to, uh, Jesus said to Paul in that difficult ministry in Corinth, I have many people in the city do not give up preaching the gospel. Oh, that is our hope. And this is what kept Hezekiah going. And you know, Jesus urges us to that kind of zeal. In one passage, he compared his salvation to a wedding feast. And he said, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find, Matthew 22, 9. And it's true, not everyone will come. But by means of the faithful witness of his people, Jesus says the wedding hall in due time was filled with guests, Matthew 22, 9 to 10. Well, maybe best of all, this spiritual renewal that had taken place among the people of Judah was brought to a high pitch through their own restored witness to the gospel. Look at verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do with the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. You see, this spiritual vitality is ascribed here to the Lord in his blessing. It was God's hand on Judah that gave them this unified fervor to honor his word and yet while it's ascribed to God rightly we should notice that it was on a church that had renewed its zeal for missions for evangelism for the spread of the gospel it just so happened that this was the kind of church on which God had laid his his hand that is not coincidental they had recovered the gospel they had they had they'd been led by a godly king there were there were now people laboring to spread the gospel and it's on that kingdom that church as it were that god was pleased to lay his sovereign hand and spread the fervor for the lord how often that is the case today they had restored their unity in the gospel message the shared blessing of faithful biblical worship and by these means god was pleased sovereignly to his glory to put his hand on them and give strength to their hearts well, with that introduction, the chronicler tells of this Passover. That's the second main section. We've been in it for a while. 
but it's really about the celebration of the Passover that was kept in the first year of Hezekiah's reign. In time to keep the feast in the second month, now a great crowd had assembled in Jerusalem, and first came the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the calendar read you had the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. At the end of that week was the Passover celebration. Now, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was a remembering of two things about Israel's departure from Egypt. The first was the haste by which they left. They didn't have time to, to do leavened bread. They did not have yeast, so they, they baked wayfarer's bread. There was no leaven in it. And if you remember back from Exodus chapter 12, they left with their staff in their hand and their belt, uh, their, their cloak tucked in their belt. They were a pilgrim people. This was a reminder of that. But primarily, it was a symbol, the unleavenedness, the, the yeastless bread. Yeast so often is a symbol of sin and its penetrating power. It was a symbol of the calling for holiness in their lives. And so likewise, as the people prepared for the Passover, they were to eat unleavened bread for seven days, Exodus twenty three fifteen. That's a passage establishing this feast. The feast of unleavened bread is seven days where they would remember their pilgrim status and they would consecrate themselves and they would symbolize it by eating unleavened bread. Now, as Hezekiah led the people and no doubt explained all this to them, the ceremonies had their intended effect. And we read this in verse 14 because what it actually symbolized, they went on to do. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense they took away and they threw into the book Kidron. And so so here we have an example of where the ritual obedience to God's word led to spiritual insight. The believing people acted in faith. They understood. They removed the idols and the false gods from their midst. In fact, so powerful was the example of this pursuit for holiness that it actually reached the clergy. Now, that's a real revival. When it reaches the, 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 the professional clergy who had been languishing, they were cynical and they were the least to catch on. But verse 15, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed, so they consecrated themselves. How often something like that happens today. God will revive the hearts of children and it'll impact their parents and recall them to their spiritual duty. And yes, there have been revived congregations that awakened even their unconverted pastors. There's a famous, from the days of the Great Awakening, of, of a long-serving, spiritually dead minister who was preaching in the midst of his sermon while the congregation prayed for him. While he was preaching the gospel, he himself was converted. Someone cried out, the preacher done converted himself. And it was true. That can happen too. Well, the time had now come at the end of the week, a week spent pursuing holiness. The time for the Passover itself had come in the slaying of the lambs. Now, we can be sure that the story was told. This was the point of the celebration. The story was retold from God's word of what had originally happened. Israel languished as slaves in Egypt, and God came and he afflicted hard-hearted Pharaoh with a series of nine very cruel plagues to judge him and to break his grip on his people. But each time he, after he repented, he unrepented. Now would come the tenth and final plague. The angel of death would visit the land of the Nile and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt would die in payment for their sins. 
And yet the people of Israel were instructed by Moses that it could be different from them. They were each to take a lamb. Each family was to take one lamb and they were to to slay that lamb. It would be their meal, but especially its blood would be spread on the lintel and on the doorposts of their houses. And when the angel of death saw the blood, it would pass over. Here's what the Lord promised. These great words, when I see the blood, Exodus 12, 13, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 13, there's the gospel of the Passover. When I see the blood, my wrath, my death will pass over. The people were redeemed from God's wrath on their sin through the blood of the lamb that was slain on their behalf. And so year by year, the people of God were to repeat this event in keeping the Passover. They were to remind themselves how God's wrath had passed them over because of the blood shed in their place. Now earlier when we were discussing the the message that Hezekiah sent out to to Judah and Israel, I referred to his message as the gospel. And you might have thought that's, a, that's, an out of, that, that, that's out of place. This is the Old Testament, not the New Testament. The word gospel belongs to the New Testament. But you see why I use that term. As we consider Hezekiah and the people who crowded into Jerusalem, and now they're keeping the Passover by spreading the blood on the posts of their doors, we realize this was intended. What was the chief purpose of the Passover was to point not merely backwards but forward to the one who would fulfill it. And it happened, of course, during the Feast of Passover. The Christ, the Lamb of God, the true Passover Lamb, was slain for our sins. It was John the Baptist who pointed to Jesus of Nazareth and he cried, Behold, the Lamb of God, referring to the Passover Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, it wasn't merely the sin of a family. One sacrifice for all who believe, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul made the connection explicitly clear. He said, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And so Hezekiah and all his people, they not only renewed their unity with the ancient people before them, but they actually renewed their unity with us. With God's people of every generation, there is no other unity than under the blood of the Passover lamb, Christ who has come. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ and the blood he shed on the cross for our sins that we are made one as God's redeemed people. How I love the words of Philip Bliss's hymn, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Now, once again, there was a problem. Hezekiah is trying to work through things and it's difficult. And he needed to respond. It turns out that a great number of pilgrims had come from distant places and they did not have time to consecrate themselves for the offering of their own familiar lamb. Each family, the head of each family, was to sacrifice a lamb, but they were not consecrated ritually. They had just arrived. They could not do it. And so Hezekiah responds in two ways. First, he has the priests and the Levites make the sacrifices for the people. Now, again, according to the original instructions, 
Each family was to slaughter its own lamb. Look at verses 16 and 17. The, they took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests threw the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. In other words, the priests and the Levites were making, them, they themselves were making the sacrifices on behalf of those who were unconsecrated to make the sacrifices for their families. The chronicler explains, verse 18, for a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, that is from a long way away, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. That was the first thing Hezekiah did. He made provision as well as he was able, even though it wasn't exactly keeping how God instituted the sacrament. Now, his second act was to pray for them, to intercede on their behalf, these members of God's people. We see his prayer in verse 18. May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanliness or cleanness. Now, people may draw, and some do, from this occasion that it does not really matter that we faithfully adhere to the biblical approach to worship, that we may fudge on the sacraments in the way that we think is best and right. Let me just say that that is the very opposite of what is taught here. These are people who'd made every attempt that they were possibly able to do, including the timing of it, every provision of it. The problem was they weren't able to do it. Even when Hezekiah begs for pardon for not doing it as prescribes, he's placing a category on it. The category, he admits, is one of sin. This passage does not say, well, you just worship according to your desires, and God's okay with that as long as you are sincere. That is not at all what's happening. What's happening is the very thing that Hezekiah prays, that God is good, that he's kind, that he looks on the heart. He saw they were trying to be biblically faithful. They were having a hard time doing it. People are showing up at the last minute, and they haven't had the time to richly cleanse themselves. And so there's a priest and a Levite there. And his faith in praying this way was rewarded. The Lord is good. He looked on the heart. He accepted what was offered in true faith, expressing a sincere attempt to honor his word. We read that the Lord healed them. That means he forgave their sins. They experienced the peace of God and the spiritual comfort of heaven. Well, we as Christians today look to heaven and we are very grateful to have a better mediator, yes, even than good King Hezekiah. We have Jesus Christ, and he is interceding on our behalf from heaven. Oh, how often must Jesus look upon our many flaws and our failures and say, Lord, I'm going to ask you to forgive them. Charge it to my account, but they're doing it in my name, sincerely seeking to keep your word. They do so in a faulty way, and he looks on us with mercy for faults and failures. I love Hebrews 7.25. It reminds us what this intercession is all about, how effectual it is, how it is eternal, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, speaking of Jesus, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Well, the final section, we'll look at it more briefly, it records Hezekiah's Passover and then the response of the people to the blessing of their God. They show the release that comes with the forgiveness of sins. Now first, they offered themselves in praise with great rejoicing. Verse 21, and the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. 
We're reminded here that true worship is offered in a spirit of rejoicing, that we believe in reverent worship. It's in good order. That's biblical. But none of those qualifications are at all contrary to joyfulness, to inward enthusiasm, to joy of the Lord that comes out in our singing in our, in, our, in our voices that are lifted unto him. The Levitical musicians led them and they sang with all their might to the Lord. We've had the experience, we've had it here. Of the house of the Lord filled with voices that longed to praise him. That's what was going on there. It's one of our great joys. Now second of all, King Hezekiah is going to keep leading them and he's so pleased at what's happening here that he wants to promote this revival, as it were, to keep going. We read that he encouraged and exhorted the Levites, those who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. And it's a long feast, seven days it goes on. It was very arduous. And the people were giving thanks to God that now that the Passover lamb has been slain, there's the peace offering and the thank offerings that's taking place. Well, that requires sacrifices, so Hezekiah brings them. We read that he gives 1,000 bulls, 7,000 sheep. What's he doing? He's resourcing. The worship, and, and this is temple worship, these are thank offerings, peace offerings, uh, inspired by him. The, there's a match offering of his princes, another thousand bulls, of even more sheep, 10,000. Verse 23 says, so provided for, the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. And then these were required more sacrifices, so even more priests consecrated themselves in great numbers as this renewal of true faith began to spread. The, the chronicler says there had been nothing like this since the days of Solomon. He's talking about in the original consecration of Solomon, there was a second week because the people wouldn't go home. Yeah, this is truly the good old days, Those speaking in terms of the outpouring of the Spirit. This is the kind of thing that had happened in the days of Solomon. Isn't that wonderfully encouraged? Often we look to great movements in the past and we say, well, we'll never reach that fever pitch. But what we're to do is we're just to commit ourselves to God and to his ways, to show faith, to spread the gospel, to commit ourselves. And maybe that some chronicler will say, wow, it was like the Great Awakening in Greenville. It's like the former days. It's the spirit of God and all things are possible. Martin Selman says that this fervor is kept going by the joyful experience of spiritual oneness in keeping with the saving purposes of God. He says, to be in God's will results in joy. And Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. John fifteen eleven. Well, so great was the rejoicing that it spread from renewed faith in God's promised redemption through the blood that Jesus gave and so the, the chronicler can hardly leave off his description. Let me just read verses 25 and 26. He's so excited about it. He just keeps writing about it. The whole assembly of Judah, the priests and the Levites, the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners. By the way, it's, it's Gentiles, by the way. That's you and me in that scene, our forebearers. They came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in it, Judah, they rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Well, finally, the second week of feasting came to its end, and the time had come for this spiritually restored and rejuvenated people to return to their homes to serve and worship the Lord there. The chronicler concludes with a note of the blessing that God pronounced by his peace, by his priests, 
It was a blessing from the priests. It was the assurance of the people that they had been forgiven. Verse 27, then the priests and the Levites arose and they blessed the people. It was God's blessing they gave. And their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Well, let me conclude with this question. How do God's people manage to go back to their ordinary lives after such a time of fellowship, praise, and salvation? The answer is that they return in faith with a renewed commitment to live for God, to live in his blessing, and to live in the spirit of holiness they had shared. It's with this in mind that the chronicler actually concludes his account in verse 1 of the next chapter. The chapter division really should be one verse later. And it tells how they continued their consecrations. While they were on their way back home, they kept the spirit of holiness going. Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, so they're going home, and they broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin. Previously it had only been Jerusalem. And in Ephraim and Manasseh until they destroyed them all. I wonder what the Assyrians were thinking. These pilgrims come back from Jerusalem. They're, they're being law and orderly. They're being productive, but they're tearing down idols. That all the people of Israel return to their cities, every man to his possession. Well, here we find the answer of how we know that we have met with the Lord in a spirit of true faith, that we've received his grace that forgives our sins, that grants us the joy of heaven. How do we know that's what we experience instead of merely some fleshly excitement in a religious setting? Well, according to this passage, the way we know that it was real, it was true, it was of God, is because our lives henceforth bear the marks of consecration unto him in a joyful pursuit of holiness. This is the point the Apostle Paul made to the New Testament churches when he was undoubtedly thinking back on this encouraging account from the reign of Hezekiah when he kept the Passovers. Now, Paul pointed out and many times in his letters that God's grace is designed not only to forgive us of the guilt of sin, but to lead us out from the power of sin and even the practice of sin. Here's how he put it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. We read part of this earlier. He said, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He's referring, he's remembering the old feast of the unleavened bread. And here's the reason. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And we're to follow the example of these pilgrims who departed in such great joy in the celebrations led by godly Hezekiah. And listen to the particular application of the realization that Christ is our Passover lamb. How do we respond? Here's what Paul says. Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Father, we thank you for this remarkable event that took place and your great care in recording it for us. Father, help us to see the gospel dynamics of Hezekiah's Passover. And Father, we thank you for the ways that we enjoy this now. We look to Jesus as a church and we, we are blessed by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that there would be even more. That we would have a clearer sense of your love for us and the gift of Jesus. That we would be moved by you in your heart. Yes, Lord, put your hand on this church. Put your hand on our lives. And give us that fervor in unity together.
for all the things of our God. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.